Today on Murderous Roots, we will be discussing the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway. We had so much information, we had to put it into two parts. In this episode, we'll be exploring Gary's crimes, his immediate family, and his maternal line. And today, we have a guest joining us, Mira. So, let's get started. Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. Well, welcome back to Murderous Roots. I'm Denise Gilhart. And I'm Zelda. Hello. Hello, sweetie. It's been so long. Oh, my gosh. But, man, hasn't the world just changed since the last time we recorded? Thankfully, we still have loads of serial killers to talk about. Yes, we do. And just as a quick reminder, since it has been a while, we're going to discuss the serial killer, and then we're going to discuss their family tree. And today we have a guest with us, our wonderful, fabulous, intelligent, oh my gosh, she's so smart, friend Mira. Yay, Mira's here. The party can start. Well, I mean, she she's working, she's almost got her PhD, so I don't know... That's super smart to me. Yeah, it took me forever. And then we can call her Dr. Mira. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I love yes, that. I will totally allow that. Yes. When my brothers and I, so I had two brothers who one got his doctorate, the other became a medical doctor. And I, of course, oh, yeah. have my um, law degree. And we all became doctors within a, like a very short span. So when my brother graduated from medical school, we got a photo of all of us with our doctoral oh. hoods looking over our shoulder. We were so cocky at that party. We would literally walk around going, I don't know, Dr. Morgan. What do you think, Dr. Morgan? I don't know, Morgan. We were so full of ourselves. Oh my gosh, it was fantastic. Well, it's a, it, I'll tell you what, just going through that process is the most humiliating and <laughs> humbling and just, yeah. I am a diamond now. <laughs> yes. It's humbling. Yes. The pressure, like I am a shiny diamond now. Yes. Yeah. I just, I just have a master's, y'all. So sorry about that. I don't fit in the doctor club, but you know, just with that, so that far. Is enough. Just need to say so far because I have a feeling. Oh, true. When your littles well, you are know big, what? you're going to be all like, Amen. you know, I feel the need to research some obscure <laughs> part of serial killers <laughs> that. Nobody else has done before, Honorary and I'm going to write my thesis on this, and then everyone has to go around calling me Dr. Denise. That's it. I'll go for my PhD in criminology. There you go. Honorary doctorate. Watch. Speaking of serial killers, today we are discussing the Green River Killer, dun, dun. Gary Ridgeway. And what do you have for us today, Miss Zelda? Well, when you first said, hey, we're going to talk about the Green River Killer, I was like, you know, in Evansville, Indiana, we have a road called Green River Road that is um, very famous for teenagers basically getting stopped by cops because they're traveling up and down. Um, but so I thought, oh, maybe I'd never heard of this man before you mentioned him. Yeah. I, I know, right? Crazy. Um, yeah. And so I'm like, that would be very interesting if he was another homegrown serial killer. Um, mm -hmm. But no, this man, let me tell you. <laughs> Um, so first of all, Gary Leon Ridgway was identified as the Green River Killer. Um, he is still alive. And um, when he was not under 24-hour observation by our government, uh, wandered around killing women in Washington State over about a 25-year span. This enabled him to become one of the country's most prolific serial killers. And in fact, he is the most prolific convicted serial killer in the United States. He yeah. targeted mostly sex workers and teenage runaways, which is probably how he was able to get away with it for so long. He was nicknamed the Green River Killer because so many of his victims' bodies were found in the Green River. Yes. So his method of operation was that he strangled his victims, usually from behind. After strangling them, he would dump their bodies in forested and overgrown areas in King County, often returning to the bodies to have sex with them. Ew. It's so gross. Oh my gosh. It is. It's so that's, that's not uncommon with a lot of serial killers. Yeah. Sadly. And ew, right? Yeah. Like how many serial killers or not even serial killers, just killers that we've talked about go back 
and it's I think he's our first. Um, Ted Bundy. Girl? Oh, yeah, Bundy. Bundy. Oh gosh, I forgot about that one. Yeah. So. Yeah, no. How could you? Just like <laughs> you. He's a hard one to forget. Yeah, so, he is. He was actually arrested, thank you, Jesus, on November 30th, 2001, as he was leaving the truck factory where he worked in Renton, Washington. He was arrested for the murders of four women whose cases were linked to him. Mm -hmm. As part of the plea bargain, he agreed to disclose the locations of still missing women. um, So he spared the death penalty because of that and received a sentence of life imprisonment without parole. So really what it boils down to is that the advent of being able to use DNA in criminal investigations is what really led to his downfall. Oh, yeah. So a moment of appreciation for technology, please. <laughs> so what's really unsettling to me is that during his active years, which were they think as early as 1973 to about 1998, most of his murders happened between 1982 and 1983, right as yours truly, the miraculous Zelda, was becoming a teenager. So Ooh, I was in fault? his target audience. I'm sorry? Oh, okay. That's what you meant. I said yeah. it's your fault? <laughs> <laughs> I was the inspiration. I drove him over the edge. I'm hearing Chicago <laughs> right now. <Yeah. laughs> Ridgeway was identified as a possible suspect as early as 1983, but it wasn't until 2001 that the police were able to gather enough evidence to actually convict him. He eventually confessed to 71 murders. He was convicted for 49. He confessed to more. He was linked to more than that. But there's not enough direct evidence to convict him for the rest. He may have killed almost 100 women. Wow. So now, Ridgeway is not the brightest of men. And his childhood indicates he was heading down a murderous road. Not just because he was a middle child, either. (laughs) His parents were abusive, and his mother was also sexually abusive to him. He was born on February 18, 1949. He had a short temper, fantasized about killing his relatives. Although, honestly, who hasn't been there? <laughs> Just saying. There's moments. Okay, so really seriously, though, when he was 16 years old, he lured a six-year-old. It's hard to say this without getting nauseated. Right. Into some woods and stabbed him. <gasps> the little boy... In the liver. Through the ribcage, into the liver. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. He survived after spending weeks in the hospital. Later, Ridgeway said he did it because he wanted to see what stabbing someone felt like. Ugh. And here's the thing. I haven't found any evidence that Ridgeway was arrested or questioned or anything. Mm-hmm. It was just like little boy shows up with a foot-long stab wound and nobody goes to find the guy who did it. I'm just like, something was really off about that. Now, granted, that was, you know, the 60s. So, Ridgeway grew into a strong, dumb, violent man who hated Mm -hmm. women. Yeah, he was dumb. He was a dumb man. So he was not smart, but he was cunning. Clever, right. Yeah, he was meticulous about how he found, murdered, and disposed of his victims. He reportedly would only pick up women who were alone. He wore gloves for many of the murders, and he frequently changed the tires on his truck so that his vehicle couldn't be traced to body dump sites. Mm. Now, here's what... Here's another fat little factoid. Ridgway didn't chew gum and he didn't smoke, but he revealed he would sometimes leave gum wrappers and cigarette butts near the bodies of the women he killed in order to throw off detectives. They were from other people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, that's clever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You could be. He was paying attention. There are some people that are super book smart, have no common sense, no cunning. And there's people on the other end who have no book smarts, mm-hmm. but that boy. Street smart. Yeah. Yep. Because they know how to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And that's what it is. Exactly. And I found this really interesting article by Sean Robinson um, in the Tacoma, Washington News Tribune. It's from November 9th, 2003. And he. Um, had interviewed some psychology people with different titles to see what made him tick. Well, it seems his profound lack of empathy for others fits the definition of a psychopath. Yes. Um, And a psychopath, they have no sense of what another person might go through. They're what psychoanalysis calls malignant narcissists. They're so preoccupied, they're impervious to considering another individual except as a tool to meet their own needs. Now, while psychopaths care little for the needs of others, they know social rules exist. So they know what society expects from them and they just don't care. 
if, if, if I could be so rude as to interject, I want to, uh-huh. so I don't know if you are both aware of Dr. Romani, who is kind of a, a, a foremost expert, a preeminent expert on narcissists. And you know what she calls them? The dark empaths. The what? Dark empaths? Dark empaths. Because they can't feel what you're feeling, but they can see it. Oh, curious. Oh. See that? You just made it 10 times more creepy. I know. I have the chills. Like, I know. It's super creepy. But it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it does because they look at look at Ted Bundy. Look at this guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, these these guys looked unassuming. That's the, the creepiest thing to me is you look at them and you think to yourself, he could be my neighbor. He's not someone I'd oh, notice. Yeah. And Ted oh, Bundy yeah. was actually kind of good looking. Yeah. 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 And even Ridgeway, Ridgeway's not ugly until you look into his soul, you know? Well, that's the thing. Right. Well, that's the thing. He looks he looks like the boy next door. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he totally he does. does. Guy and, who works and, at the at the you know the car factory or whatever, mm-hmm. you see him every hey, yeah. and he was charismatic. Exactly. exactly. Yeah, and he knew how to gain his victims' trust. So court documents describe the tactics he used to make his victims feel comfortable. He flashed his wallet, showed a picture of his young son. Mm-hmm. When he brought a victim to the ha- to his house near the SeaTac Airport, where he had killed dozens of women at his home, mm-hmm. he showed them his son's room and toys scattered across the floor. They look in the bedrooms. Nobody's in there, he told investigators. There's my son's room. Hey, this guy has a son. He's not going to hurt anybody. In interviews, Ridgeway was asked to rate his own evil. Given a scale of one to five, he answered three and pointed out he didn't torture his victims. Yeah, he didn't torture them, so he's not that bad. Once they were dead, the victims became his possessions, Ridgeway said. A beautiful person that was my property. Mm. So Ridgeway graduated from Tylee High School in 1969 and married his 19-year-old high school girlfriend, Claudia Craig. He joined the U.S. Navy and was sent to Vietnam, where he served on board a supply ship and saw combat. While in the military, Ridgeway was a huge fan of sex workers, including he got, like, oh. gonorrhea... Apparently, he did not use protection very often. Oh, of and, not. Um, needless to say, their marriage ended within a year. Now, I would be very interested to know how many Vietnamese sex workers went missing while Ridgeway was in town. Mm. Because, you know, he had already been practicing. And right. so... And in Vietnam, if a sex worker goes... You know, at that time, if a sex worker goes missing... At that time? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not to give any serial killers any ideas, but it's not any better in over yeah. in Asia right now. But I do want to say that... Um, so, mm, he said that one of the reasons that he would go back and have sex with the bodies is so that it would keep his urges a little better under control for long enough to keep him sort of under the radar. And I just have a suspicion that because Vietnam was so rank and violent, he may not have killed any sex workers because he might have been able to get that murderous uh, impulse out of his system. Mm-hmm. And the adrenaline rush and all that was just walking through, walking around, like just being in Vietnam was kind of an adre- adrenaline rush. So I wonder if things were somewhat under better control because he was able to kill people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he was on a sl- supply ship, though. Was he actually killing people? What I mean is like the, the adrenaline and, and the fact that you had to worry oh, about yeah. it. And, so I don't, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, as we touched on earlier, when questioned about Ridgeway after his arrest, friends and family described him as friendly but strange. His first two marriages resulted in divorce because of infidelities by both partners. His mm-hmm. second wife, Marcia Winslow, claimed he had placed her in a chokehold. He became Mm. religious during his second marriage, proselytizing door-to-door, reading the Bible aloud at work and at home, and insisting his wife follow the strict teachings of their pastor. Um, He was known to cry after sermons or reading the Bible. But despite all of this, he continued to solicit the services of sex workers and wanted his wife to participate in sex in public and inappropriate places and sometimes in the areas where his victims' bodies were later discovered. Mm -hmm. So according to the women in his life, Ridgway had an insatiable sexual appetite. His three ex-wives and several ex-girlfriends reported that he demanded sex from them several times a day. Often he would want to have sex in a public area or in the woods. Ridgway himself admitted to having a fixation with sex workers with whom he had a love-hate relationship. He frequently complained about their presence in his neighborhood, but he also took advantage of their services regularly. Um, as an aside, with his second wife, Marcia Ridgway had a son named Matthew. Around 1985, Ridgway began dating Judith Mawson, who became his third wife in 1988. Mawson claimed in a 2010 television interview that when she moved into his house while they were dating, there was no carpet. Detectives later told her he'd probably wrapped a body in the carpet. Yeah, 
So in the same interview, she described how he would leave for work early in the morning some days, ostensibly for overtime pay. Mawson speculated he must have committed some of the murders while supposedly working those early morning shifts. She claimed that she had not suspected Ridgway's crimes before she was contacted by authorities in 1987 and had not even heard of the Green River Killer before that time because she didn't watch the news. So, author Penny Moorhead interviewed Ridgway in prison, and he said while he was in the relationship with Mawson, his kill rate went down and that he truly loved her. Of his 49 known victims, only three were killed after he married Mawson. Mawson told a local television reporter, I feel I have saved lives by being his wife and making him happy. Well, you know what? Sorry, but you got, uh, how do you get through that? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I feel like that is almost a reasonable... And it's almost, I don't want to call it a fantasy, but it's its almost a reasonable belief at that point, because how else do you handle the fact that while you were with this person that you trusted, you had, a, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah, you were having sex with a man who was having sex with corpses. Yeah, the cognitive dissonance must be so much. And so she, it sounds like a positive person that she's trying to find <laughs> a way to make it not as bad. Yeah. For her own psyche. Kind of a legit point. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's true. It's just, yeah. So, here's here's the part that blows my mind, more so than we've already seen. Mm-hmm. Um, he was married, as you we know, three times. He had a son who describes him as a very good father. Uh, Ridgway mm-hmm. went to all of his son's activities and treated him really well. His son had no idea his father had a dark side until Ridgway was arrested. At that point, his son was 26 and a Marine at the time of Ridgway's arrest. Now, interestingly, one of the stories from his son's childhood that this son, guy actually remembers is they picked up a woman, they stopped somewhere, the son's in the truck, Ridgeway and this woman go walking off into the woods. Ridgeway comes back alone and told the son that, oh, well, she decided to walk home. And it turned out, no, he'd actually murdered her. Wow. Yeah. I feel like that would be... I th- that, mm. But apparently at home he was calm and gentle and uh, quite a wonderful father. Yeah. So the samples collected in 1987 were later subjected to DNA analysis, providing the evidence for his arrest warrant. On November 30th, 2001, as we discussed before, he was at the Kenworth Truck Factory where he worked as a spray painter when police arrived to arrest him. Ridgway was arrested on suspicion of murdering four women nearly 20 years earlier after first being identified as a potential suspect when DNA evidence conclusively linked semen left in the victims to the saliva swab taken by the police. The four victims named in the original indictment were Marcia Chapman, Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines, and Caroline Christensen. Three more victims, Wendy Caulfield, Deborah Bonner, and Deborah Estes, were added to the indictment after a forensic scientist identified microscopic spray paint spheres as a specific brand and composition of paint used at the Kenworth factory during the specific time frame when these victims were killed. Another moment of respect for tech. Yes. So after Ridgeway's arrest, once he saw the mountain of evidence against him, he confessed in exchange for details about his murders, avoiding the death penalty and locations of other bodies. He was eventually sentenced to 480 years without parole. So to wrap up this, I have a few little factoids. Mm-hmm. Police began consulting with serial killer Ted Bundy while he was in a Florida prison. Bundy advised them the new disposal site was probably closer to the killer's home. So police created a triangle around the area and found Ridgeway's home was located within this red zone. On Monday, May 7, 1984, police subjected Ridgeway to a lie detector test. They asked him if he had ever caused the death of a prostitute and Ridgeway said no. Ridgeway passed the test. However, many... Okay, what, Vera? Tell us what you're thinking. Oh, that, that is amazing to me. Yeah. Like, I can't lie to my kid without well, feeling he probably, it. You know what I mean? Yeah, he probably has antisocial personality disorder as well, and they don't feel any guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Isn't that amazing, though? Like, yeah. no, 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 wow. Like, yeah. just, he just no physiological response at all. He had just, no... Yeah. physiological yeah. response yep. at so, all. That yeah. just blows my mind. Yeah. It's it's kind of a yeah. superpower, but it's a super... Yeah. Yeah. And police one. kept their eye on him, though, because, you know, they were interviewing prostitutes, and they said, hey, we've seen Ridgeway here. And he was absent from work on every day a prostitute went missing. When police interviewed Ridgeway's second wife, she told them something very disturbing, that Ridgeway liked to have sex where the Green River Killer's victims' bodies were found. 
Ooh. On Wednesday, April 8th, 1987, police seized hundreds of Ridgway's personal effects from his home, work, and van. Police also took a saliva swab from Ridgway for the DNA testing, which we talked about earlier. But, of course, DNA at the time wasn't very advanced. They weren't able to link the DNA directly to Ridgway at the time, but they saved it. And they meticulously saved it because they knew the tech was going to improve. But at the time, their trail to Ridgway went cold. Another factoid... In the early 80s, as Ridgway was killing dozens of prostitutes, he also attended meetings of parents without partners. The organization was, as you may recall, was designed for single people as an easy way for them to meet like-minded people with similar interests. And my final interesting yet sad factoid is that the suspected Greed River killer victim, Cora McGurk, who was, has been linked to it, but that has not been definitively proven. She was the mother of NBA player Martel Webster. She disappeared when her son was four years old. Oh. And that, my friends, is a summation of the wretched, wretched life and crimes of this man we know as Green River Killer. Well, so one of the things I want to say about something that you said was that you referred yeah. to him as a psychopath. I think he might be a sociopath, right? Because psychopaths are born, sociopaths are made. But I think I think what is so to me the reason I bring it up is what was what really what really freaks me out about him is how charismatic he was. Oh yes, he was quite charming. Yeah. I mean, he was friendly, so he wasn't an introvert. Mm-hmm. As, 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 nobody mm-hmm. knew him as an introvert. He was like a great dad and all that stuff. And that's why I wonder that's why I wonder as someone who has a knack for psychology. I mean, I started off in psychology, I didn't stay there. My knowledge is limited in terms of how far down that rabbit hole can a sociopath go? And is he our best example of that? He might be one of the better ones. Ted Bundy's usually been held up for a long time. Because like you, I say psychology. That's what my master's is in. And I was looking at doing a PhD program at the time in forensic psychology. But I got a little burned out on school at the time. Yeah, I don't blame you. So <laughs> there's so many different good examples. It's just... I don't think there's one pure example of it, though. Well, it seems like there's so much um, overlap because then you have the borderline personality. Right. Well, there's a couple of things I want to mention. Um, part of the reason I chose Gary Ridgway for us to do is because his victims. His victims ran the gamut. Yeah. I mean, they were all within a certain age. Yeah. They were all different racially. And mm-hmm. all the people we've covered before only had white victims. And I don't want the black victims to be missed and recognized because there were a lot of them here yeah. and I will on the website post a picture of the victims so people can see right all of them I, I'll make stuff all the ones I can find pictures for wow god love your work because that's a lot of people well there's a way to do it and and, and some people have already oh, created yeah. it so it shouldn't be that difficult oh nice we were looking at one that only had I, I think it only had the 49 maybe yeah and I, sh- I showed it to my husband and he was like, he was like, it's, he's like, he doesn't have a type. Mm-hmm. Other than teenage runaways and women he had access to. Right. One of the things that was interesting is it seems that the women got younger the longer he did this because mm-hmm. he realized that they were easier to manage and easier to fool. That so. irritates me beyond belief, yeah, yeah, by the way. But it makes sense in terms of a criminal's mind. Mm-hmm. Well, that predatory, mm-hmm. right? One of the things about predators is that they're notoriously clever Uh right what i wanted to say about the um about the type right is that i don't believe he didn't have a type but i also don't think it was isolated to in other words this broad category of you know runaways and prostitutes i think he had a personality type oh probably like that's kind of what i suspect is that because he'd have sex with them and not kill all of them so what was it that would trigger, and I feel like it's anyone who reminded him of his mom, black or white, Asian or, you know, Latino. Like, I don't, I think there was something about them that triggered that predatory response. And he probably didn't know himself when it was going to happen. Right. That's I, that's kind of what I suspect, but I've never seen anything written about that per se. I think it just requires some study. To, and because... This goes back to college, and I took this class, Human Sexuality in Everyday Life, the most popular course on campus. Like, you couldn't take it until you were a senior. (laughs) And it was taught by Dr. Dennis Daly. He was a social welfare school. He was 
he was why it was so popular. I mean, it was in one of those large lecture halls. He made it a lot of fun. But he talked about everybody has this attraction thing, component that we're attracted to someone on. And it might be something as little as the way their eyebrow is formed. Right. It doesn't have to be something that's so distinguishing as, oh, I like only brunettes. Right. Uh-huh. And so I think that would apply to even the serial killers. They might have a type, but it might be so subtle, we would never see it. Uh-huh. Right. And the fact that we know that he had sort of an Oedipus complex, mm-hmm. right? So my suspicion would be that something about their personalities either reminded him about something his mother didn't have that he wanted or something his mother did have and made him murderous. <laughs> like it was sort of, or both, you know, I don't know, but I kind of feel like, well, it makes sense because she sexually abused him. Right. So, okay. So I, I read, obviously, you know, obviously I read up on it and um, serial killers are, you know, they're morbidly fascinating. Um, <laughs> no, <laughs> but like, like I, I almost feel, I almost feel a little icky about that, but I can't help it. So as far as that goes, I was looking at, like, I was looking at, um, because I also looked into the whole, his, the relationship, because Ted Bundy actually had a lot to do with them finding DNA Mm -hmm. evidence, right? Telling them, um, you know, he might go back and have sex with the corpses. And they were like, oh, so when you suggest that stuff, that's because that's what you did. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, okay. So, so thank you. Um, Thank you, Ted Bundy. (laughs) But. They had this, both of them had sort of this history, but Ted Bundy showed a much earlier, right? Yeah. He showed that imbalance much earlier. But I never saw anything about his mom, about Gary's mom, sexually abusing him. Oh, yeah, no, his mother was horrible. Now, she didn't have sex with him, no, but right. she, um, he was a bedwetter till he was 13. And yeah. so, and then after he, she would wash his private parts for him, and then, um, she worked as a, as a fitter in a clothing store and would describe, like, what it was like to measure men for pants and how big their genitalia was and what it smelled like. And I mean, like, so she was definitely, um, sexualizing him. Right. In a way that today would be defined as sexual abuse of a minor it should have been at any time (laughs) yes yeah but you know back in the 60s it's like everything count like 60s and 70s were like our perv years i think as a country well and and speaking of his family let's talk about that i'm so excited to see what you dug up denise before we get there i want to mention something you know how he was picked up by the police multiple times i saw something about the brothers saying that they they thought the police were just targeting him needlessly. And so on that last arrest, they figured that was what it was about again. And how wow. surprised they were that, oh, he really did do those things. Like you said, you know, he was born in 1949 and he was born in Salt Lake City, Utah. He was the second of three boys to his the parents, Tommy Ridgway and Mary Rita. His brothers have been interviewed and their names have been out there, but I don't want to out them any more than they have. And as you mentioned, the wives for three times, I found each marriage record and each divorce record. Nice. That's unusual for us. I know. Sometimes people get married without getting divorced. That's true. Washington State, though, has a lot of good records on that. And like his first wife, Claudia, they got married in 1970. They might have left each other within a year, but their divorce didn't happen until 17 months later. Okay. Um, his second wife, Marcia, they married in December 1973. They had their one son and divorced in May 1981. I was impressed at the fact that they stayed married for eight years. Yes, me too. <laughs> Judith Mawson, she was actually a divorced woman, and her name at marriage was Judith Lynch, and they got married in 1988, and they were married at his arrest. Now, what I find interesting is she claims that he told her that she should divorce him. Really? Yeah, that it would be huh. easier on her. Wow. And he said that pretty quickly in. He knew he was going to go in. Wow. And then she says they divorced immediately after his arrest, and at least by his conviction. But I found their paperwork shown showing the divorce happened in January 2004, not 2002, as described. That's according to the Washington Divorce Index. So I don't know if it's that she filed the papers and it took that long to complete. Mm. I don't know. In 2007, there was a book released written by Penny Moorhead about Judith called The Green River Serial Killer, Biography of an Unsuspecting Wife. And I found this on pages 115 to 116. I'm excited. Barry's Aunt Lorraine, this is his mother's sister, said, Well, you know, Judith, it doesn't surprise me that Gary did those awful things. You know, he's a lot like his father. That Tom, I never did like him. Mary was too good for him. He was nothing but a womanizer, 
seeing prostitutes back when he was a truck driver and all. And then the book goes on to say that Tom was quiet, but Judith never felt comfortable alone in a room with her father-in-law and claimed that he had an odd sense of humor sharing raunchy jokes. Wow. Speaking of Gary's father, let's learn a little bit more about him. Tom was born on April 9th, 1923 in Roswell, New Mexico, as Thomas Newton Jr. to Thomas Sr. and Gladys Bivens. He was their first child. Less than a year later, Irish twins, his brother Roy was born. And then five other siblings quickly followed. Edward, or he went by the name Curly, Lincoln, who died before he was three, Forrest, and Nancy. Now, for reasons we will explore a little bit later, the family did not always remain in New Mexico. Now, Senior was from Kentucky, and the family seemed to go back and forth to Kentucky. In fact, Junior's brother Curly was born in Kentucky when Junior was two years old. I just have to comment on how Kentucky has inspired so many lines of, of murderers. Yes. Just just saying, like, Ohio's so bad, like, they get a lot of astronauts because they all want to get as far away as possible from Ohio. Um, um, <laughs> Kentucky, however, something in the water. You be the judge. Oh, yeah. We had Jim Jones, Charles Manson. What I did find fascinating, though, is that in the 1930 census, I did not find Junior living with his parents or his siblings, for that matter. His father and the rest of his family were living in Bruin, Kentucky, and his father had no occupation at the time and was living next door to his mother. That would be Gary's great-grandmother. Now, where was Gary's dad? Where was Junior? Well, he was in New Mexico living with his maternal grandparents. By 1930... In Roswell? Yeah, in Roswell. By 1932, though, the family was all together again in New Mexico, where Senior and Gladys would remain until their death. So no more return trips to Kentucky, as far as I could tell. At some point after World War II began, Thomas Jr. enlisted to serve in the U.S. Army. I was unable to find his enlistment date, but I did discover that he was discharged on November 2nd, 1945, when he filled out his required draft card for World War II in Seattle, Washington. Yes, they made people who had just served fill out draft cards. That's just mean. Yeah. I mean, they get exempt. I just don't understand them having to... Yeah, that's a whole thing. I feel the same way about serving on a jury. Because as a lawyer, in many states, I'm, it's an automatic exemption. And yet I still get the phone call. And then there's states where you're not an automatic exemption. And so you've got to show up, sit there all day, and then you get dismissed for cause. Mm. So... Just sharing, life sucks for us all when it comes to jury duty and <laughs> military service. But I want jury duty. I know, seriously, like, I'm begging to be on a jury, right? And people are like, you know, you know. <laughs> I, I lived in Tampa. I got called twice. I was unable to do it because of my jobs at the time. I've been <sighs> living in this, and that's Tampa. It's a big city, right? Mm -hmm. I live in this smaller town here. I have, For five years, I have yet to be called. Okay, that's just wrong, because you would be such a good jurist. I would love to do that. I mean, think about it. it it involves our best qualities, sitting around and judging people. <laughs> I have to admit, though, if if it's a for a criminal trial and they go, do you, if they ask about my podcast and I say the name of it, I'll probably get excused. But you never know. Okay. Anyhow, according to the, to the program from Tom Jr.'s funeral, which I actually found. Give this girl an honorary doctorate in forensic psychology. Bring it. <laughs> Tom spent the war repairing airplanes and even flew trainer and fighter planes, at least according to himself. I say that because mm -hmm. I'm not sure I believe all that because... The I big think, thing, maybe. I, yeah, yeah, I just... I have questions about that because of what he did later on, and that's why I'm about to get to. In 1947, two things happened to his family. First, another sister was added to the family, Joyce. Likely a surprise addition, as his father was like in his 50s and his mother was in his, her mid-40s. The other is he, he got married to Mary Rita Steinman on, Jan, on July 3rd at a Justice of the Peace in Seattle. Now, Mary was five years younger than Tom, born in January 1928 in Valley City, North Dakota, to Edmund Steinman and Clara Schlegel. While she was born in North Dakota, she did not grow up there, though. By the age of two, her family had moved to Great Falls, Montana. How, how far apart were, the, were their ages? Five years. Okay, thank you. I missed that. Mm -hmm. Oh, and I should mention that Mary was a third child and first daughter. She had an, two older brothers, Robert and Joseph. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, the family wasn't in Mon Montana for too long as they were in Washington by 1935 when her younger sister Lorraine was born. The family would remain in Washington from that point forward. And they were in Western Washington? Uh, yeah, they were in the Seattle area. So Tom and Mary married... <laughs> And four months later comes their firstborn son, born in Salt Lake City, Utah. So she four months. Yeah, four months. So we know why they got married. Yes, I think that. Well, they were enthusiastic newlyweds. Sometimes things happen faster. And earlier. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
the funeral program, this is a quote, early married life contained most of the hard trials for Tom. He was often asked to work long hours driving trucks or heavy equipment. Mary was called upon to work as well to support the family. Until the children were nearly 10, life was centered existing on short change in Utah, Idaho, New Mexico, and Arizona. The break came when Tom got to Washington to look for employment while visiting Mary's family. Tom found a job working for Gray Line Transportation driving a bus. He drove a bus for the rest of his working life. Now, do you see why I doubt that he was flying planes? Uh-huh. He has no pilot license. I was thinking the same thing. Especially right at that time period, I don't know why it would be so difficult to find a job when there were plenty of jobs right after the war. Yeah, I don't have enough knowledge. You know, I just don't have enough knowledge. I know that I know that there was a lot of development happening mm-hmm. in in the West at that time, because I lived in Utah, I lived in Washington, and being in Washington and Utah, you become very painfully aware of Idaho. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I have more on on some of his jobs, because from 1953 to 1957, at least, it might have been a little bit before and a little bit after, the Ridgeway family lived in Pocatello, Idaho, with Tom first working as a salesman for Standard Oil, and then later in construction. And this is according to the um, city directory. So, because back then they would list the name, the address, and what their job was. That's so interesting. He's flitting around with different jobs. Like I said, I think there's more going on there than whether or not he was employable. Especially looking at historical context, because we know that back then, the thing was to have a stable job. Right. Right? Yes. And so probably had, being um, a grandiose narcissist, you know they have problems with authority. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They don't like following directions. They don't like following orders, which also tells us that his description of whatever it was he had to do in the army very likely did not involve flying planes. Right. It probably had to do with repairing, but not much beyond that. By 1960, the family lived in SeaTac, Washington, where they would remain. While Tom worked as a bus driver, Mary worked as a saleswoman at J.C. Penney. Tom would later develop Alzheimer's, and he died in January 1998. Mary lived three more years, dying just two months before Gary's final arrest in 2001. Isn't that interesting? You know, I, as much as I, you know, you know, I'm going to take back this thought, because I'm like, oh, it's nice that she died before he was arrested, you know, and convicted, because she was his mother. But then it occurred to me, she made him that way, so fuck her. I know you're going to, like, delete all of that, so I'm feeling... (laughs) You totally spoke my mind. She's part of the reason, but there are other people who've had the same type of abuse Mm -hmm. who don't kill. Right. I think it's a combination, and he had two brothers. As far as we know, they never killed. Right. So there's different elements going. I do believe it's a combination of elements that create it. Mm -hmm. You have to have that right... Yeah. Something in the head is born, and then... Combined with the environmental elements. Right. And you know what? As a mom, and this is Mm -hmm. something that I want to ask you, Denise, Mm -hmm. as a mom, I, like, I find myself partially sympathetic to her, whatever mental illness was untreated that led Mm -hmm. to all this, that made this perfect storm, like, perfect shitstorm. Right. (laughs) But I also judge her in a way more harshly. Oh, yeah. Because... Like, mm-hmm. how can you not? And this is where I think Zelda can absolutely relate is this part of it, which is kids are innocent and depend on us. They are vulnerable to us. Mm-hmm. There's probably nothing in the world that burns my ass more than fucking narcissists. The, the constant onslaught of toxicity is just unfucking bearable. Yeah. And so I think about these serial killers and. Yeah, I get you. Okay. So anyway. Okay. Mm. okay. I will make a quick note on Gary's aunts and uncles on his father's side. Junior has one or two siblings that are probably still living. Like that youngest sister was not much older than Gary. And then he had another sister. But his siblings seem to have had families, happy families, and some degree of success professionally. In fact, one of Junior's older siblings, not older siblings, he was the oldest, but one of his brothers went on to have a very successful business in the, where he lived. And pass it down to his son, and his son ran it and sold it and is doing something else very successfully. So, Oh, that's good. And, you know, I thought about putting their names out there, but at the same time, I don't want to hurt their business if nobody knows about it. Mm-hmm. So I won't. I did stumble on a story about Tom's brother, Forrest, or should I say I found his death certificate that told a sad tale. Forrest was born in January 1929 in New Mexico. Like his brother, Forrest moved to Pocatello. And in fact, I'm not sure who moved there first, because I know that Forrest was there in 1952. 
I know that Tom Ridgway and his family were there in 1953. It could be that one went there because the other was there, a new family there. In 1957, he got married. Then on July 24, 1963, at the age of 34, Forrest was killed while doing his job in highway construction. In fact, he was working on a new section of the new I-15 freeway, just south of Pocatello. The freeway work started in 1957, and they were still building new sections of it at that time. According to the Idaho State Journal, dated July 25, 1963, Forrest was driving a water truck up an incline when it lost control. Rolling back and swerving, he was thrown from the truck, and the truck ended up on him, <sighs> crushing him. Ow. Dude. Yeah. yeah. He left behind a wife and two sons. Oh, man. Sadly, one of Forrest's sons also died young at the age of 42. I'm unaware of the cause of his death, though, and I wasn't able to find a newspaper report on that. Mm. Okay, I don't mean to laugh with the faces <laughs> you make. She makes the best faces ever. I'm the most expressive, and I can't help it either. <laughs> That's why I stick my hands over my face. Have you seen? I do that sometimes. Yeah. Because I'm trying. I'm like, I can't help it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Are we ready for his mom's family? I am quivering with excitement. As mentioned earlier, Gary's mother, Mary Rita Steinman, was the daughter of Edmund Joseph Steinman and Clara Martha Schlegel. Edmund was born to Alex Steinman and Marie Ann Bengold on December 19, 1896 in Storm Lake, Iowa, a small town 70 miles to the east of Sioux City, Iowa, or it's up in the northwest corner of the state. Edmund was the first of seven siblings. Sometime between the age of four and seven, Edmund's family headed north, settling in Barnes County, North Dakota. What? Yeah. I I couldn't figure, I figure it was for farmland. Yeah. Um, but they first settled in Springvale, where Edmund grew up. Fifty mi- And Springvale is 50 miles to the west of Fargo, and 202 miles east of the capital, Bismarck. And I did notice that it seemed to sit along the railroad route. Okay. The tracks at the time. Would make sense. Mm-hmm. Not long after Edmund's family arrived, Clara was born to parents Michael and Teresia Reidinger in Fingal Township in Barnes County. In fact, it's quite likely that the Steinmans and Schlegels knew each other as they both lived in the small community of Springvale. Clara was their ninth child of at least 11 children. At least? At least. I say at least because I get the names from the census mainly and sometimes from death records or social security, but there might be one that got missed, one that where a child was born, but they died young. Wasn't cataloged, right. So I I just put that as a qualifier, at least. By June 5th, 1918, when he filled out his World War I draft card, Edmund was living in Fargo, working for Everson Contractors. And I found it interesting that his address was for general delivery in Fargo. It's been a long time since you hear about people getting general delivery. And a funny note is when you look at some old newspapers, they will list everybody who has letters in the post office waiting for them. Uh Like, you need to pick up your mail, people. (laughs) Yes. Interestingly enough, when I was an attorney, we were trying to tack down heirs for an estate. And uh, Mm -hmm. we called this one guy who didn't have an address. We found it kind of lives out of his van somewhere in Alaska. Mm -hmm. And they were literally like, Oh, we just send this mail to general delivery at that post office. And he checks it every couple weeks. I'm like, we'll see if it happens. So did it totally worked. Why why get a box? I mean, (laughs) yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Just thought I'd share. That's yeah. It's it's an example that it still happens. Yep. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, it seems that Edmund decided to enlist in the U.S. Navy two weeks later after he filled out the draft card, rather than risk being drafted into the Army. He would remain active duty for 13 months until he was released to reserve status. Edmund returned home for a time. Now, I'm not certain why, but I can imagine this had to do with being in the Navy, but he was in Texas soon after in 1921. I know this because it was there that Edmund and Clara married on May 31, 1921 in Brownsville, Texas. Then in March 1922, Clara gave birth to their first child, Robert. Oh, that's why he's not a serial killer. He's a Pisces. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Sorry. Is Pisces limit their victims to one? Or (laughs) (laughs) yeah, right. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Just three months later, Edmund was honorably discharged from the Navy in 1922. The family left Texas and settled in Villa Park, Illinois. It's in the western suburbs of Chicago. Then in 1924, they had their second child, another son named Clarence. 
and a third son in 1926, Joseph. Sadly, in June 1927, little Clarence, age three, died in a car accident when the car he was riding in tipped over on the highway in Elmhurst, Illinois. Oh my god, that's so sad. Yes fracturing his little skull. Oh my gosh. The family left Illinois soon after returning to North Dakota, where Mary was born eight months after the death of Clarence. Soon after her birth, as mentioned earlier, the family moved again, this time to Great Falls, Montana, and from there to Washington. Edmund worked as an electrician, and by 1940 census, the family lived in Brownsville, Washington, a small, unincorporated community in Kitsap County. It sits along Fort Orchard, just north of Bremerton, and it's across from Bainbridge Island, Interesting. where Edmund worked as an electrician at the Navy Yard. In early May 1962, Edmund passed away at the age of 65. His wife, Clara, would go on to live 27 more years, likely spending her remaining years in Bremerton. She died in April 1989. Obviously very happy and content. Mm -hmm. Now, all the parents of Edmund Simon and Clara Schlegel were immigrants, with one side from France and the other from Hungary. And I guess which family was from which? (laughs) (laughs) We'll start with the Schlegel family. So, Michael Schlegel, Gary's great-grandfather, father of Clara, was baptized on the 16th of September, 1862, at a Catholic church in Porgolini, Vos, Hungary. And if I screwed up that name of the town, I apologize. I'm not sure how many siblings he had, but I know he had at least one brother, John. Michael's parents, before I forget, were Stefan Schlegel and Anna Fashing. Around 1884, Michael married Theresia Reidinger, who was baptized at the same church in January 1867. She was the daughter of Stephanus Reidinger and Elizabeth Lackner. Her father was baptized in 1828. Now, Elizabeth had at least two siblings, Maria and Stephanus. Her paternal grandparents, Gary's third grades, were Stephanus Reidinger and Theresia Zettel. In 1885, Michael and Theresia would have their first of 11 children, Mary and August. Then in 1886, the small Schlegel family made their way to Bremen, Germany, and boarded the Wera, the name of that was the name of the ship, in steerage. The ship stopped first in Southampton, England, on its way to New York City. <laughs> they would have gone to Ellis Island. That's kind of cool. From there, the family headed to North Dakota. Why? I have no idea. Remember back then, they would sort of advertise That's true. You know, land and stuff. So I wonder if it was one of those things where it's like, you know, come to North Dakota. It's really nice. We don't have palm trees, but the weather's great. And then they got up there and were like, uh. Yeah. The family, Michael and Theresia, would remain in North Dakota until their deaths. Michael at age 79 in 1941 and Theresia at age 85 in 1952. Very well done. They were buried at Holy Trinity Cemetery, where they would be would later be surrounded by 10 of their 11 children. Clara was the only child to leave North Dakota. Interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. The Steinman family on the other side, um, Edmund's father, Alexis, or Alex Steinman, was born December 15, 1861, in Alsace, Lorraine, France. Oh. As was his mother, Marie Ann Mary Fingold, on July 4, 1866. Now, I looked into their birth information, because you see, Alsace, Lorraine was in France when both were born, but in 1871, it became part of Germany, known as the, the Imperial Territory of Alsace, Lorraine. They had their own flag and everything. And it was after the German victory in the Franco-Prussian War. So the area would remain under German control until the end of World War One, when France reclaimed the territory. So in 1872, both the Steinmans and the Bengals left their homes, removing to Boscus, France, in August 1872. Alex's parents, Nicholas Steinman and Salome Wants, declared their French citizenship for themselves and their four children. Wow. And Mary's parents, Fridolin Bingold and Barbara Dutenville, made the same declaration for themselves and their six children because they were considered German citizens, even though they had been French citizens up until that point. Yeah, you know, this is almost almost reminiscent of the Basque country, and the, but a little opposite. Yeah. Nearly 20 years later, Alex headed for America in 1891, according to the 1900 census. Mary came on her own to America on the ship. Ugh. I'm going to try to you pronounce it. You can do it. I believe in you. La Bourgogne. It's B-O-U-R-G-O-G-N-E. La Bourgogne. 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 Oh, okay. Well, it was just, I was thrown. Okay. La Bourgogne. It does think of, um, what's that, Bolognese? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, they sailed out of Le Havre, France, and arrived in New York City in June 1892. It's likely both headed for North Dakota, but that's not clear, nor when or how they met. But they did marry around 1895 and had Edmund in 1896 in Iowa. As mentioned earlier, the family left Iowa settling in North Dakota before the birth of their fourth child. Alex lived the rest of his days in Barnes County, North Dakota. He died in 1941. Mary moved west to Bremerton after his death, where she died in 1951. As a little factoid, mm-hmm. um, so Quiche Lorraine is named after the Lorraine section of, like, Alsace-Lorraine. Curious. Oh, Interestingly, too, uh-huh. the word quiche, although it is French, and it was first recorded in, like, 1605, it actually seems to be related to the German word Kuchen. Oh. Um, isn't that interesting? And the first English usage of quiche Lorraine was recorded in 1925 in an Indiana newspaper. Oh, let me guess it was a re- recipe that they were sharing. Yes. <laughs> and I believe it was about quiche Lorraine. Yeah. yeah, of course it was. Duh, sorry. But I just had to share that because I'm a foodie. And I grew up thinking that quiche was pronounced differently. So... Okay, now you can't drop that there and go on. What did you think? I know. How did you think quiche was pronounced? Quiche. 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 Okay, that's... Not quickie, which some people <laughs> say it's quickie. It's not a quickie. I thought you were going to say quish or something, so... Quish, no. Quiche. Yeah, which I, makes it I, sound I, totally unappetizing. Can we just agree? Yeah. Quickie? No, that's funny. Quish. Oh, okay. Well, it's not like we ate a lot of it when I was a kid. It would be called egg pie. <laughs> we never ate quiche as a kid. I never yeah. had it. And then I discovered it when I made it myself for the first time in my 20s. And I'm like, oh. Not only is it delicious, it's easy. And you look like you've done this amazing fancy thing when in actuality it took like actual attention of five minutes and then the oven did the rest. Yeah. Mm. Maybe I'll have quiche today for lunch. Oh, that sounds good. I I have the ingredients. I have the knowledge. (laughs) And I want to call it squishy now. Okay. (laughs) Quishy. See, now that just sounds disgusting. Now I don't want it. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Now let's go over to... uh... At uh, Gary's paternal grandparents. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Oh, I might be having a stroke from laughing too hard. Oh, my God. (laughs) Are there five of you on this call? (laughs) No. Okay. 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 And that is the end of part one, the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway. Please join us again in two weeks on February 17th as we discuss Ridgway's paternal line. And, oh, boy, you don't want to miss it. There's so much drama. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review. Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.